Welcome to The Bone Club. The Bone Club is a global network for orthopedic surgeons and allied health professionals to share knowledge across geographical and organizational boundaries. We are an open community that celebrates diversity and inclusivity. All practitioners in musculoskeletal health are welcome to join us. Please visit thebone.club in order to learn more. The following is a recording from one of our rooms on Clubhouse. It is live, unedited, and published with the consent of those involved. Opinions belong to those involved and do not necessarily reflect those of the Bone Club. This is not medical advice. Now, onto the podcast. Please enjoy. Welcome to the Bone Club. Uh, my name is Akib Khan. I'm a North Pete Registrar in London, and I'm joined on stage by several co-host guests, and there are quite a few more who should be joining us soon. Um, so I'm going to just go through today, what today's discussion is about, a few of the ground rules, um, and then uh, we will get to it. Um, so as you all know from the title, today's discussion concerns olecranon fractures, and we'll be covering two papers, including plate versus tension band wire fixation for olecranon fractures, which was a uh, randomized controlled trial by the Edinburgh group, and complications and mortality with olecranon fractures in the elderly, a retrospective cohort comparison from a large level one trauma center which is from the Leeds group. And we're really grateful for Mr. Carling for being uh, present today, um, as well as uh, Mr. Lee Ben Rensberg uh, and uh, several other consultant and um, attending surgeons from around the world. Um, so what I'm going to do first is go through some general housekeeping, uh, particularly for those who may be new to Clubhouse. Uh, so if we, um, once we go through that, we'll go through the actual discussion points for today. So this room will run for 60 to 90 minutes, and you're welcome to come and go as you please. Um, if you're in the audience and you'd like to speak, we welcome that. Please pl press the little hand button on the bottom right-hand side of your screen, and that will alert one of the moderators uh, who will be able to bring you up onto the panel so that we can um, discuss your point or your question or your experience within this field. Um, we will ask you to introduce yourself before you make your point, and please keep this brief to less than 20 seconds. And if you are on stage and you'd like to respond to a comment, then please wait for the current speaker to finish talking, at which stage you can unmute your microphone um, and discuss your point. Every 15 minutes or so, I will refresh the room to ensure we stay on topic so that, no, so that all of the new joiners are aware of where we're up to with the discussions. And we will be keeping a recording of our journal club tonight uh, in our archives so that others who can't make it tonight will be able to benefit from the expertise that's shared during this session. So I'll encourage all of you to follow the speakers that are on stage uh, and also the Bone Club uh, by either pressing our faces and uh, pressing follow and the little bell symbol next to our faces um, and also to follow and join the Bone Club, please do press the little green Monopoly house um, above the title of today's room. Um, this will help guide your club host's experience so that you end up going into more rooms which, with similar content and similar speakers. Uh, I also want to alert everyone that we've launched our website, which is available at thebone.club. Um, and very um, excitingly, today we've just been endorsed by the International Orthopedic Diversity Alliance, uh, which is a diversity organization aiming to improve diversity and representation throughout orthopedics and throughout the world. So I'd encourage everybody to check out the website and perhaps become a member there as well. So we'll start today's program with introductions by the speakers and following that, we'll have a factual summary of the papers. Um, the first one will be by Kartik Logashetti and the second will be by Abhinav Singh. Um, and then we'll enter into an open panel discussion focused on three areas. The first is going to be a general impression of the paper and answering the question of, is this a good paper? The second will be the methodology and the results. 
Um, the third will be, will this paper change your practice? And this will provide an opportunity for everyone to discuss how you currently manage your olecranon fractures in your institutions, um, the health economics behind your decisions, your experience within the field, um, and any further comments that you may have. So without further ado, um, we're going to start by discussing uh, the paper from the Edinburgh group. And um, this paper is, is quite an interesting one, which um, we're going to have Kartik go through the factual summary. Um, before we get there, let's start with some introductions. So I've said who I am, and what we'll do is we'll move on to the right. So I'm going to um, ask uh, our panelists to introduce themselves, um, and then we'll take it from there. Um, the nature of Clubhouse is such that we only have first names, so I, so I do know who everyone on stage is, but if anyone does come up and I call you by your first name rather than by your title, I do apologize. Um, but that's the, the nature of the system. Uh, so first we have uh, Lee Van Rensburg. Could you kindly unmute yourself and tell us who you are and what you do? Hi, uh, my name is Lee. Uh, Lee Van Rensburg. I'm a consultant orthopedic surgeon in Cambridge. And I do mostly elbows, some shoulders. And uh, elbow trauma is really what uh, interests me. Thanks. Brilliant. Thank you. Um, and then we'll move on to Paul Cowling. Uh, hi, good evening everyone. I'm Paul Cowling. I'm a uh, shoulder and elbow surgeon based in Leeds. Um, electively, it's generally more shoulder than elbow work. Uh, and then in trauma, the major trauma centre in Leeds do shoulder and elbow work. Thank you. Brilliant, thank you. And then we'll move on to Hani Abdul-Jabbar. Uh, thanks again, Akib. It's uh, Hani Abdul-Jabbar, consultant orthopaedic surgeon. Uh, with a specialist interest in hips and knees. Uh, trauma, I do general trauma, but I must admit the focus of my trauma is generally lower limb and I deal with elbow fractures less frequently these days. But thanks again. Thank you. And then on to Kartik Logoshetti. Hi, Akib. My name's Kartik. I'm an orthopedic registrar on the Northwest London rotation. Abhinav Singh. Hi everyone, thanks for the introduction, Akib. Uh, my name is Abhinav, I'm an orthopaedic registrar here in Northwest London Rotation um, with uh, interest in upper limb trauma. Thank you. Rupin Dutani? Uh, thanks for the invite, Akib. Uh, yeah, Rupin Dutani, I'm a consultant shoulder and elbow surgeon at Chelsea Westminster Hospital. Electively, it's mainly shoulder work I do, but trauma wise, I do a fair amount of elbow and also some shoulder trauma. Fantastic. And uh, we'll go on to uh, Dr. Danor Damodar. Hey, everyone. Uh, my name is Danor Damodar. I'm a fifth year, final year orthopedic surgery resident uh, in the U.S. I'm going to be uh, doing my fellowship in sports medicine and upper extremity um, surgery next year. Thanks. Okay, fantastic. So shall we start with a factual summary of uh, the first paper that we're discussing, which will be the Edinburgh Group's randomized controlled trial, and I think Kartik is going to take it away now. Thank you. So this was a, a randomized controlled trial uh, comparing plates versus tension-bound wire fixation for electron fractures, published in 2017. As mentioned by Kip from Edinburgh, uh, with some of the doyens of trauma from Duckworth, Clement, White, Court Brown, and Miss Margaret McQueen, pretty much all names that we recognize now, and published in the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery. It looks specifically at uh, electron fractures um, classified as Mayo 2A. So these are non-fragmented, isolated, displaced fractures of the electron. Plates are generally more expensive initially, but we know that tension band metal work may cause problems needing removal. So that's the main driver behind this study. It was a one-to-one -one RCT, and the patients were adult patients, uh, 
less than 70 years old, uh, with no other elbow, bony or ligamentous injury, and presenting within two weeks of that injury. They had 34 patients for the tension band wire and 33 for the plate, and only there was one patient crossing over into each of uh, the other groups. 28 patients in each group uh, made it to final analysis. The range, as I mentioned, 80 to 74 years old, but the tension band wire group was slightly younger on average, despite randomization, 43 years on average compared to 52 years. It took about uh, a median of two days to get between the uh, presentation to surgery, and surgery was performed or at least supervised by a consultant in both groups. The tension band wires were performed with 1.6 mil K wires and a 1.2 mil cyclage vigrovate, and the plate was a non-locking pre-contoured proximal ulnar plate by Zimmer. All patients were immobilized for 10 to 14 days, then physiotherapy was started, and patients were not blinded, and of course the surgeons weren't blinded. The outcomes were uh, measured right up to a year, so two weeks, six weeks, three months, six months, and then one year post-surgery. The primary outcome measure was a very familiar upper limb uh, patient-reported outcome measure, the DASH score, at one year. The secondary outcomes were surgeon-reported scores, so the Mayo Elbow score and the Bromberg and Morley score, and also the authors measured pain, complications, and cost. So complications included loss of reduction, problematic metalwork, or removal of metalwork, and cost was length of stay, cost of surgery, and subsequent appointments and surgeries, all from the NHS Lothian Scotland costings. They also looked at x-rays. The study was powered to detect a 10-point difference in DASH, so that required 25 patients per group. What the results showed was that overall, combining both groups together, the DASH was 11 points with a range of 0 to 79, and lower DASH scores are better. So there's a wide range, but most patients got better. There's no difference statistically between the DASH score between either group at any time point. And at one year, the scores were 12.8 for the tension band compared to 8.5, so a lower DASH score, but not statistically different in the plate group. The secondary analysis showed that overall, both treatments worked. About 90% of patients achieved excellent or good outcomes in both groups. There was no difference in the range of motion or what the surgeons reported either. The complications, however, were a bit different, with 63% of tension band wires uh, having complications of some sort compared to 38% of the plates. Now, loss of reduction was twice as common in the tension band wire group, 27% compared to 13%, but, you know, apparently not statistically different. And there were four infections in the plate group, none in the tension band wire group. Also, the revision surgeries were all in the plate group and none in the tension band wire group. One was for infection, one was for a long screw, and one for failed fixation. Looking at cost, well, this costed on average around 5,529 patients per, sorry, 5,529 pounds per patient, so around $8,000 in the uh, 2017 money. And there's no significant difference at the one-year time point in the cost between the groups. And that's, of course, because the plates were more expensive at the start, but then tension-bound wires required more second surgery. So the plates cost £550 here compared to tension-bound wire, which costed just £32 for the construct. Now, half of the patients in the tension-bound wire group required removal, 50%, compared to just 22% of the uh, plate group. So in conclusion, this was a non-blinded RCT of Mayo 2A electronons in 67 active patients from a centre of excellence in Scotland. There's no difference between the plate or the wires at one year patient-reported outcome measures. The tension band wire required double the rate of removing metal work, but plates were the victim to more serious complications, i.e. infection or the need for revision. Thank you. Thanks for that excellent summary, Kartik. I think that you um, really 
uh, managed to sum that up very succinctly. And I'm always amazed every week at how you're able to do that um, for all the papers that we, we throw at you. Um, so thanks for doing that. So let's start off with the first question then, and we'll go around the room. Um, and I do want to invite anybody who's in the audience, if you do want to come up and join and share your opinions within Elecranon um, or elbow surgery, you're more than welcome to raise your hand and we'll bring you up on stage um, to, share, to share your opinions as well. So we'll start off by asking, you know, the general impression of this paper. Um, so was this a good paper? So let's start with Lee on my right. Yeah, great paper. Um, good people. I love what Edinburgh writes. I love what Duckworth writes. I think he writes sensible stuff. Court Brown and McQueen, um, you know, definitely come from the great and the good. Um, and I agree with their conclusion. You know, 90% of people who have an elbow fixed will do well. Some of them will have some mischief or complications, which they nicely, ele eloquently show us. And everyone knows that tension bound wires can cause mischief. Um, yeah, really good paper, I think, just demonstrating uh, and highlighting to me anyway, that major mischief that plates can cause. The mischief is more significant. Thank you. I think that's quite interesting. And, you know, we'll come on to a discussion about fixation methods um, a bit later on in terms of TBW plates, suture fixation. Um, I know that uh, Rupin Dittani does dual plating with um, suture fixation, which I'm sure he'll he'll mention as well. Um, let's move on uh, to uh, Paul. Yeah, thanks, Akiva. Again, it's a really excellent paper, very scientific. It's looking at reasonable outcomes that we'd expect from these type of fractures. Uh, and it's done by a very good group who've got history in looking into these sorts of injuries. I think one of the key things to say um, is that it, it was stopped prematurely because of the um, ethical considerations that they had with this paper. It's sort of important to point out, really, that they felt that the rate of complications uh, was getting quite high in the operative group to the extent that they actually called it a day early on their um, uh, collection of pa patients at the start. Um, but overall, I, I think the important thing is exactly that, that the range of movement and the outcomes that you're looking at are pretty good across the board for these patients who've had um, fixation of electronal fractures. Um, and so that's sort of to be recognised. The stopping of it early hasn't made too much of a difference in the outcomes that you're looking at. I think that's important. Thanks for mentioning that. And I think it's also interesting because they, they set a power um, when, they, when they did their power calculation, they, um, they actually surpassed that in terms of the number of patients that they had when they were specifically looking at the primary outcome measure, um, which is obviously, you know, another, another thing. So they, they went beyond what they actually need in terms of recruitment, um, uh, which is always, you know, commendable in these, these sort of studies. Um, uh, Hanny, shall we move on to Hanny? Uh, yeah, it's a very nicely written paper. Um, it's very reflective. Uh, of the UK practice and it's very applicable to the uh, elbow fractures we encounter. Uh, so I'm in total agreement with Lee and Paul uh, about the excellence uh, and the significance of this paper. Thanks for that. And um, shall we go over to Kartik now? What were your thoughts having gone through the numbers and everything in detail? Happy to reflect what Lee, Paul, and Hanu said. Great paper. I think I'm interested to hear about the uh, the expert experience in terms of their own uh, experience of the complications and how many times these uh, this hardware is removed in their practice. I think in these kinds of studies or any research studies, when you're calling back patients, um, you know, maybe looking at them a bit closer because they're part of a trial. Uh, I wonder if you know 
patients being there, asking those questions, complaining about things, changes what happens in terms of how things are reported or, or when metal work comes out. And uh, maybe we can explore that a bit later on. Thank you. Fantastic. Abby, your thoughts? Yeah, thanks, Akib. So um, what I was really struck with was sort of the statistical robustness and the methodology of this paper. And like we uh, we talked a little bit about the power calculations informed um, uh, in this sort of core, uh, in this core of patients, but actually how they reached it uh, and bringing into that point about, you know, picking a minimally clinically important difference of 10 points uh, in the dash score. So as to say that, um, you know, that their conclusions are actually something that can be applied clinically um, uh, rather than just uh, having numbers. Thanks. Rupin, your thoughts? Uh, yes, I'd, I'd echo what um, the rest of the group have said. I think it's a great paper by a really respected group. And it certainly would reflect what I see in our practice. I think a 50% removal rate of tension band is about right. Um, and I tend to consent patients for that. I quite often say you will need to have this taken out. Uh, I think it's quite often the knots in the figure of eight is, is what tends to bother patients quite often. The other thing I feel, I think tension band is, is quite quite an easy operation to get wrong you know it's quite often left uh, for registrars to do and i think it is you know it's it is an operation you can get wrong uh, i think and i have seen a few complications associated with it but uh, and i think in our practice removal of plates is probably slightly i you know i haven't really analyzed our results but i'd say it's about uh, 30 35 percent maybe uh, so yeah but overall it would really reflect uh, i think uk practice Thanks. Donor, what do you guys do over in the States? Yeah, yeah, I thought the, the paper was great. The methods are excellent. The statistical analysis is, is great. Um, I really like the cost analysis inclusion as well. I, I would say we we tend to uh, do more play fixation than we probably should. Um, but, you know, studies like this kind of show us that, that the concerns of hardware removal are real. Um, but uh, yeah, we, we tend towards uh, plate fixation. One of the interesting things we do that I've that we've been doing a little more recently, and I think I'm sure is common amongst shoulder and elbow surgeons as well, is we'll put in uh, a six five a long six five cancellous screw, sort of a home run screw, uh, and then um, we'll add a little mini fragment plate uh, underneath that. So kind of like intramedullary fixation along with a little mini frag plate with unicortical locking screws. Do you do that for simple fractures? So the Mayo two A's is that is that your mantra for that? Yeah. Okay. Not always, but occasionally uh, some of our uh, some of our faculty members are trained uh, and they like doing it that way. Okay, brilliant. Um, we'll we'll come on to the uh, practice that everyone has around the room. Um, and uh, before we before we get there, let's go through the actual methodology and the results of the paper in a bit more detail, um, just so that we have a better idea of of this, uh, this paper that everyone on the panel seems to agree is, is a very well-written paper from a very respectable group. One of the things which um, I, I was reading, and I wonder whether this is something that we should consider, is the age difference um, between the patients that receive tension band wires compared to those who receive plates. So the tension band wiring group was around nine years younger, um, and that was a statistical difference between the two groups. Um, is that, is, does that make a difference at all? I don't know. What do you guys think? So I'm 51, no. Okay. Anyone else? (laughs) 
So clearly it's not that much of an issue. Um, the other thing which I thought was quite interesting was, and I think kind of reflects practice around the UK at least, that I think 71.6% of cases were actually um, performed by trainees under the supervision of a consultant. And I wonder whether that's a similar sort of makeup or, or experience in other centers. Uh, this is open to the room, so anyone can unmute and discuss. Yes, very resonant case uh, in the US as well. And in Leeds, what, what are you guys doing over there? Do you, do you let your registrars loose? Yeah, I keep so absolutely right. Um, I think that actually Rupert made a really good point earlier about tension band wires, which is um, it's commonly seen actually, you know, certainly, uh, believe me, I'm not uh, an old consultant. I was a trainee uh, only a few years back and I was only Lee's fellow about five years ago, believe it or not, uh, Lee. But even in those dark days back then, this was an SHO operation, primarily because it's on the AO basic course. And so it was almost left to SHOs or registrars, very junior, to go up with a tension band wire. And then a plating, well, that was thought to be even technically more easy, of course, because there you are, there's the plate, there are the screws, and there's the fracture, just get on and fix it. So I think very much it's seen as a, uh, a trainee-led operation traditionally, because we're aware that there now are complications associated with both plates and tension band wiring. Um, then I think it's perhaps becoming more and more of one that's um, certainly more supervised than perhaps uh, even when I was doing it. Um, I'd just like to add, Akib, I think I um, may have misled people with my synopsis just earlier on when I started talking, unfortunately, about Duckworth's other paper on the elderly fractures. I'm getting too excited about electronic fractures in the elderly because of my paper rather than looking at this uh, very good one in the American Journal um, that they've done. So apologies for the suggestion that they haven't recruited properly. They have recruited properly in this paper. Yeah, no, no worries at, at all. Um... What we'll, what we'll do is we'll, we'll have a bit more of a chat about the actual methodology and the results for this paper, and then we'll move over to, to discuss the Leeds paper um, in about nine or 10 minutes time. But let me just refresh the room because I know there are a few new faces down below. So this is the Bone Club. Um, this is our weekly journal club. Uh, this week we're discussing an upper limb topic, which is olecranon fractures. And we have two excellent papers um, that have been selected for us to discuss, the first of which we are discussing at the moment, which is a randomized controlled trial, which was conducted at Edinburgh um, uh, which is a level one trauma center comparing uh, the tension band wiring technique compared to the um, ORIF with a plate technique. Um, and we will soon be talking about another study which was done at another level one trauma center in, in the UK uh, based in Leeds. Um, and we'll, we'll have that discussion uh, in a, and we'll start that in about eight or nine minutes time. So what I want to do now is um, ask if there are any further thoughts about the actual methodology uh, or the results within this paper. And I'm going to open this up to the floor because I'm sure there's a lot that people want to say about interesting points or things that they found in there that might mirror their own practice. So um, shall we shall we open the floor up to the floor? Who wants to unmute and discuss what their thoughts are? One, one thing I came that I wanted to ask the, the senior authors as a, as a registrar is there's serious complications that seem to happen more in, in the plates. Could you offer you know, why you think that those uh, serious complications, the infections and so on, are more likely to happen? Um, and whether you think that, you know, in your, again, your practice, is that the same? Do you see the more serious complications if you were plating? And is that enough for you to say, 
well, you know, even though the rate of removal is double, I still recommend tension-bound wires in these uh, in these patients. I'm going to unmute because I really like that question. Yeah, go yes, ahead. So I've seen a, a lot of I've seen a lot of mischief with plates. Um, not that it happens a lot of the time, but when it happens, the skin over the point of the elbow. Prof. Watts talks about the weenus. That's that sort of scaly bit of skin over the left arm. Can be a real mischief maker for to heal as you get older. And then you put this piece of metal underneath and a plate. I've seen a lot of minor mischief with tension band wiring. Wires migrating, having to pull them out in clinic, take people back to theater. Um, but it tends to be much more manageable. Um, you can't see it really in terms of the methodology. I, uh, I love looking at the pictures and you can't see the picture yet. But if you get the chance to dig up this article, read through the methodology and then go have a look at figure eight. Figure eight is how they fixed one of their fractures that fell apart and went onto a non-union. And you'll find a big, long home run screw down the center of the medullary cavity. It's basically a bent third tubular, what it looks like. And that's the problem with electronons. If you don't fix the fragments, if you don't fix them properly, and we're only learning how to fix electronons now. There's articles coming out now about the shape of the, the proximal electron being an upturned boat. And the AO principle of putting your wires just under the subchondral bone probably put your K wires into the joint. And that was a mantra which AO is probably still propagating because those are articles only came out a year ago. So, yeah, bottom line, plates are unusual mischief, but when it happens, it's significant. K wires, lots of little bits of mischief. And either way, in elderly bone, you will get things falling apart. But you really need to focus on fixing that proximal fragment. It's quite an amazing um, image, isn't it? Figure eight. So it, it literally has pulled off, and it's a, it's a non-union. I think they had a fibrous non-union. I think that's how they described that image um, in in the paper. Um, but that, that screw would never have held that proximal fragment. It never the hook angle. You'll see a bit of a screw on figure eight. You can't see it. I'm sorry for those of you who are just listening. But just can't imagine how that long screw. It's really holding on to the prox to the distal fragment. That screw was not holding on to the proximal fragment really. A few osteoins, maybe. I found the American approach of the nail plate configuration interesting. Uh, is that an extrapolation of the periprosthetic fractures of the elderly? I don't know. Any other thoughts on, on that point? I, I wonder also, they use a Zimmer plate, I believe, in, in all of these patients. Do, is that the, the construct that everyone uses? Or, or does anyone use the Acumed or the Medatis system? And is there a difference between using those plates? Um, it's Paul Cowling here. I, just to comment on the point, and I, I agree with Lee, the, the issue is often around the tip of the olecranon. And I think it's the number of screws, when you're using a plate, it's the number of screws you can get in that proximal fragment, as well as where those screws actually are in that proximal fragment. I remember that fragment can be quite small, so it can only have a small amount of the articular surface of the olecranon fossa attached to it or it can be quite large. And if you're using a plate, sometimes you can only get three screws in, and in that I'm including the home run screw. So some plates vary. I use Acumed for what it's worth, but I don't think that there's um, so much variety. We also use the, um, uh, the Biomet plates as well, the Alps plating system. 
they give us slight more options in that there is a longer turn, as I call it. So there's the bit going up the posterior part of the olecranon where you can usually fit a couple of screws in. It's quite rare to actually need those two, but I think the position that home room screw and where you aim it for is quite important if you want fixation in that small, what is can be a small fragment of bone proximally on the olecranon. Thanks. Any other thoughts from the panel? Hani or Rupin, what are your thoughts on, on this? Yeah, I think uh, like most of the posterior plates, I think the design's fairly similar. Um, so you can get the extended versions where you've got more combination around the sort of tip of the electron. But I think quite often what you tend to find is when you have the comminuted fractures, where you've got the lateral and the medial sort of columns of the electron affected, then the posterior plate is probably not going to be sufficient enough because what you're doing is just literally applying a plate right at the back but you're not addressing the comminution and uh, that can be a problem with the posterior plates or and certainly a tension band, band wire would not be sufficient uh, or would not be the right fixation mode for that those particular fractures and sometimes you then see post-operative uh, x-rays where you've got a plate but then part of the electron tip has escaped off because that was never captured intraoperatively I do wonder, when we look at the actual complications within the study, so it was significantly higher in the tension band wire group, which as Catholic mentioned, it was because of um, a need for removal of metalwork, but all of the infections occurred in the plating group. Um, and, you know, I wonder why that was and whether that's sort of a similar experience. Do you find that you're, you're getting infections in the plates as compared to infections with the, uh, with the tension band wiring? I mean, one potential reason actually could be Plates are quite often used for the more complex comminuted fractures, whereas tension band traditionally used for the more simple fractures. So there could be an assumption that the if the plates are used for more complex cases, you know, the surgery time may be maybe a bit longer. There may be more complex patterns where there's more uh, soft tissue, skin-related problems in those patients, uh, or the viability of the skin. So that, that could be a potential reason for it. Sure. Karthik, yeah, go ahead. Again, a question to the senior, uh, seniors on the, on, on the stage. There was twice the rate of loss of reduction in the tension band wire group to 27% compared to 13%. The general vibe I'm getting from the room is that you know, tension band wires are overall safer because the devastating complication of plates and infection is, is, is so awful. Therefore, the question to you all is that is loss of reduction for tension band wires not that important for electronons, or is articular reduction really the AO goal here? So we'll open that up to any of the the seniors in the room. Uh, Lee, what are your thoughts on that? I think in an ideal world, I like AO. So, you know, intra-articular fracture requires an anatomical reduction to avoid degenerative joint disease and allow earlier range of movement. But that's why I'm an elbow surgeon. The elbow is stupid. It has less pain fibers than the shoulder. It has less proprioception than the shoulder. And as such, you can get away with more as long as your elbow doesn't become unstable, whether that's forearm instability or true elbow instability. And so uh, an electron stretching out by two or three millimeters isn't such a big deal. Um, and it goes running. They displace a little, but it doesn't go running a long way. You know, the, you know uh, none of, I've, I've had one in my career, which ended up with a total elbow, but that was a long, long, sad story, you know, just a, a anecdote, really. Um, 
So yes, in an ideal world, you do want to achieve an anatomic reduction, but what you want is a stable congruent joint that you can get moving. And if you can achieve that with tension band wiring, which has a less complication rates in terms of wound infection, wound breakdown, but a higher incidence of mischief and possibly return to theatre for metalwork removal. Now that return to metalwork removal is very much dependent on the individual. Um, fortunately, if I want to, I will keep you in Stockholm. You won't get your metalwork removal done by me. Um, okay, be done by the SHO. No, I'm kidding. Thanks. Um, and any other thoughts? Anatomic. Any any other thoughts from the panel? Uh, not really, no, Akib. I mean, you know, Lee summarised things very well there, and I think the AO principle is there. Um, with the elbow, I think that you can um, allow a certain amount of displacement, but obviously not too much. It, it's worth just taking a step back and almost going back to the AO principles for olecranon fractures. If we talk about simple fractures, then a tension band wire is absolutely adequate and will provide you with that anatomical reduction, the compression over the fracture sites and the ability to early mobilization. The plate fixation generally was used for comminuted fractures where the comminution usually is at the joint but can be elsewhere. And therefore you're, you're tending to use that because the tension band construct and theory shouldn't work across it. And so I think if, if you're taking the step back, your, your selection of an implant is often determined, yes, by the type of patients and whether it's open or closed, but most often by the fracture type, I believe, and, that, and that's where it's important. Um, and I agree with what Ruben said about the complications, that maybe those comminuted fractures that you need to take more time with, there's a bit more dissection towards that sometimes the open fractures may well be the ones that then go on to get the more complications, such as wound breakdown. Um, can I just ask one, one question to the panel? Did you, any of you uh, use any other means of fixation, such as suture fixation only, uh, tension band plates, dual plates? Do, do you have any other means of fixing your fractures? So let's open that up then. So we'll start with um, uh, Lee again and we'll work down the room. So I'm, I'm a later doctor. Uh, very, takes me a lot to change. So if it's a stable fracture configuration or mild comminution, I'll still use tension band wiring. Whatever I do is I want to make sure I can get you moving soon. I use a dorsal plate, but I have a low threshold to put little hand plates now down the sides of the lecronon if I need to. And in fact, if I'm fixing a comminuted fracture, I'm always thinking about grabbing the proximal fragment to allow me to get them moving early. And so I will then supplant with suture band technique. I haven't quite adopted the suture band. I like the idea of the mid-artist sleds, but never used them. Paul, go ahead. Um, very similar, really, in that it's for me, it's a tension band and a plate. I have used suture-only techniques in four or five patients. Uh, the first one I did, um, I followed up relentlessly because I was interested in how it went, and it did displace. Uh, so that would be my knot tying, and it did displace, but probably by a couple of millimetres. And the lady was absolutely de delighted with the outcome, and so was I. Um, she was quite skinny, though, and I hadn't thought carefully enough about, number one, my knot, and number one, my knot placement. We can come on to technique in, in the future. The other thing, and I, I just was catching up on something that Lee said there, I wondered, Lee, I 
also when doing either of these i also attempt to put a whip stitch up either side of the triceps as well and certainly the plate if i can incorporate some small amount of stitching with the metal work too particularly on those very proximal fractures um, and try and put that through one of the um, holes proximally in the plate or perhaps incorporate it around my tension band in a tension band wiring i think that also makes me feel better but also augments the fixation slightly that's quite interesting so you 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 whip stitch either side of the, of the triceps onto the plate is that essentially and then you use that to try and augment yeah i try to i mean the worry is of course i'm introducing more foreign material into an area which we already know has a risk of getting infection um but what i tend to try and do particularly on the you know as you can picture it from the posterior aspect of the elbow if i can gain some stitch and put up and down on that triceps um, not too far, but just enough to, again, have a further hold. And then often, and certainly on the plates I use, you can either try and fit it through a drill hole, uh, sorry, through a hole in the plate you haven't used, or sometimes through the side holes or occasionally in with the tension band wiring as it comes around the electron on there. Um, and that can be just some other extra support to try and take a bit of the pressure off the, the, um, the fixation to try and use the triceps also. Thank you. Um, and Danur, what, what do you guys do over uh, where, where you work in Miami? As far as suture fixation? Uh, yes. Do you, do you ever do suture fixation for your lacrinons? Yeah, actually, something similar uh, to what some other panelists said. Sometimes we'll actually augment the repair and uh, try to add suture fixation to an existing plate construct. Um, or um, you know, do there are cases where we've done surgery fixation alone, just uh, depending on the patient. Okay, fantastic. Um, so it seems like we've got uh, some consensus about this paper, and it feels like we're we're kind of echoing our thoughts now that you know this is a good paper, and actually it does show a very realistic view of of what the methods are and what the complications that people have encountered are as well. And we've talked about a bit about the plate fixation. We've talked a bit about the importance of making sure you capture um, that proximal tip of the olecranon, ensuring that you know you are using a construct that works, and um, ensuring that you um, uh, have um, a good fixation. Now, um, I want to ask the panel before we move on whether there are any other thoughts you know about this paper. Did, did this paper change your practice, or did it reconfirm your practice? Let's just do a quick fire around the room before we move on. So, uh, Lee, go ahead. Confirmed nicely my practice and uh, my thoughts. I liked it. Paul? Same, really, absolutely. It made me think slightly more about um, plate fixation and uh, tissue handling and repairing of the wound, but otherwise it really confirmed things, I think. Honey? Uh, yeah, for the younger patients with good bone equality uh, and a two-part simple Mayo 2 fracture, my default is always a tension band wiring. And again, going back to what Rufus said earlier, I usually can send patients for removal and I make it very clear that it's highly likely that they will require the removal of metalwork at a later date. Patients who, you know, I just make a judgment call just looking at their x-ray, if they are osteoporotic or osteopenic, then again, ideally, or generally, I tend to go for a plate just to avoid migration of the tension band 
or any further irritation to the skin, which is probably what the paper has summarized. Younger patients, good bone equality, tension band, older patients, osteoporotic or osteopenic, potentially an orif with a pre-contoured plate. Thanks for that. And uh, Rupin, your thoughts? Yeah, it's exactly the same. I think you just confirmed what happens in actual <coughs> practice. It's good to have a paper that just confirms, well, confirms what you're doing is, is the correct way of fixing. And also in terms of, uh, uh, like Hanny mentioned, uh, consenting for removal of metal work, which I think is quite important when anyone who's a trainee, if you are consenting patients, uh, I think you do have to explain to them that, you know, you may well require a second procedure to have this taken out uh, you know, within a year of uh, having the procedure. And Dano, what what are your thoughts? Yeah, no, I think, uh, you know, I, I want to say that we've probably strayed a little bit too far away from the uh, tension band construct for some of the simpler patterns. And I think what this paper kind of emphasizes is that it's, you know, it is it is effective and it's it's good for, for those fracture patterns. And so I think, um, you know, that, that kind of leads into my question that I have for some of the people on the panel, if we have a second. I, I just wanted to ask what... Uh, role cost of the implants in particular plays for furry folks um, in the UK uh, because you know on the US side I, I've gotten very interested in kind of the cost stuff recently and I, I talked to our synthes rep which is what we use often and um, you know our synthes variable angle uh, electronom plate is I think around a thousand dollars whereas a tension band construct is probably about fifty dollars. And then if what I what I was describing earlier, where we use one sort of long cancella screw uh, that is about 50 bucks, and then it's about $300 for a little mini frag plate with four unicortical screws. So again, more cost-effective methods. So I just want to see what everyone's thoughts are on that. Thanks. Let's go around the room. In terms of cost, does that uh, make a difference, uh, Lee? analysis for this paper showed that there was no difference whether you use those less fixation with more mischief of migration versus the plate fixation. Um, I must admit, to be honest, and I want to be honest here, I don't actually think about cost when I fix things. I just think about which is the best way to fix it. Um, yeah, because I'm just treating the one. Um, the managers need to come and tell me, Lee, you can't use that. And they need to tell me that's because of the many, but I look after the one. It's quite, quite a nice summary. <laughs> Paul, what are your thoughts? I don't have anything to add to what Lee said, really. Exactly the same. You treat, I, I treat the patient who's in front of me, um, and if I feel that they're better suited for plating, um, I'll do that versus the um, tension band. And I don't think particularly, I think, of cost in those circumstances. Uh, Hani and Rupin, anything to add? Uh, from my point of view, no. Again, uh, the cost doesn't really uh, play a part in my decision-making when treating these fractures. Yeah, I'd echo that. Okay, um, cost, and I don't even know. I'm aware of what how much implants cost. Okay, so what we're going to do now, before we move on, I'm going to um, just refresh the room and also invite anybody in the audience up to um, ask questions. Um, so I know that uh, there are a few questions that people have, and it seems like they're a bit shy because they're texting it to me as opposed to coming up to ask people on the panel. Um, so uh, let me just remind everybody, you know, this is the Bone Club. We're discussing Lacronon fractures. We've just finished talking about the first paper, which was a randomized controlled trial comparing tension band wiring to plating. And we're about to move on to the second paper, 
um, in a moment. Uh, but this is the last, well, not the last opportunity, but this is an opportunity. If you want to raise your hands, if you want to ask a question, if you want to come on stage and, um, you know, gain some experience or some, some knowledge from, from the guys we have up here, um, then please do raise your hand and we'll bring you up um, and uh, we'll let you discuss your, your thoughts. Um, one of the questions that was actually texted me texted to me by someone in, in the audience is um, they just wanted to comment on the implication of training and CCT in the UK. So as you all know, attention band wiring is still a mandatory skill to do um, and people seem to be doing less and less of them uh, in the UK and, and doing more plates. You know, in terms of training, do you, do you think that attention band wiring is still a technique that needs to be assessed in order to become a consultant? Uh, we'll start in order. So we'll start with, um, in fact, let's go the other way around. We'll start with Rupin. Rupin, are you there? Uh, if not, we'll move on to Hani. Sorry, I just lost you, Anne. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, I mean, I don't know why tension band per se has to be a particular technique, uh, which, is, which is a, a competency technique. I mean, I think... If you think about the, you know, the bones that you would tension band, uh, you know, just the patella and, and the electronon, um, yeah, I think it's the technique that you need to have it as part of your repertoire of, of uh, being able to perform fracture fixation. But I'm not sure why it's particularly singled out as a technique that's, that has to be a part of the competency technique. So, I, yeah, I would probably agree that that maybe does not need to be part of a, uh, a particular technique that you has to be assessed as such. Thank you. And um, Hani, what are your thoughts? Do, do we still need to know how to tension band wire and do all those cases? Um, I mean, tension band wiring as a concept is very unique in the AO basic principles. It's, it's, it's very different to, uh, you know, the other techniques that you require to know, such as ORF, intramedullary nailing, you know, relative versus absolute stability. And I, I agree, I'm not entirely sure why tension band wiring is a must uh, procedure uh, within the uh, trainees' competency prior to their CCT. Uh, you don't encounter patella fractures and, well, electron fractures probably more common, but in general, it's, again, just going by what Rupert has said, it's something that you must be aware and know how to do, but probably um, not part of the final assessment of your CCT uh, being issued. Thanks for that. Um, now, uh you know, it was quite interesting, actually, before I get Lee and Paul to answer. Um, they did quote the biomechanical study done by Wilson, um, which was in the uh, JBJS in 2011, which showed that tension band wiring may not provide that biomechanical um, sort of fixation that, that may be thought of or claimed by AO. Um, I'm not really sure. Like, what, what are your thoughts? Do you think tension band wiring is an important skill that needs to be, needs to be taught? Uh, Paul? Uh, thanks, Akib. Um, and you're quite right to point towards that paper that James Wilson did along with Amar Rangan, um, which I'm still, uh, I was a trainee, in fact, I was an SHA at the time when they produced that in Middlesbrough and did a lot of the work on it, only to find my name was missed off that paper. So I'm still extremely bitter about that sort of situation. Um, but they did show that there wasn't any compression or it certainly lost compression over time. I'm going to be slightly controversial and say that because attention band wiring technique is so different from plate fixation and intramedullary nailing, and yes, is used less frequently than the two above, 
it is still a technique unique to itself and it's actually unique to itself in the olecranon as opposed to the patella as opposed to the medial malleolus or anywhere else you might use it and therefore i do think it's something that you actually need to have shown competency whether that's necessarily via numbers or certainly the numbers that i think are currently you have to get by cct i'm unsure but certainly you know I, I think it is something that needs to be assessed because there simply are those fractures you have to fix with attention about wiring and as a result you need to be able to show that you've got competency in it by cct quite how we'll be affected by covid by reduced numbers and everything else remains to be seen um, the papers that we're showing here have reasonable numbers of tension band wires. Um, and so it'd be interesting to see numbers in trainees' logbooks as we go through the next period of time to see how many people are able to do by the end of their training. Thank you. And um, any final words on this paper before we move on, uh, Lee? I'd just like to say, yeah, tension band wiring doesn't work like a tension band, but a 2K wires and a figure of eight wire around the back of it called catching the lequinon works well. So, you know, with it, I hate biomechanical studies, but clinically, two doesn't have to be parallel. I also don't think you need to do 10,000 of them or to show competency. You need to know the concept, do one, maybe two at the most. No, I don't like the numbers game. Thank you. We're going to leave this paper there and we're going to move on now, um, just conscious of the time. So what we're going to do now is we're going to have Abhinav um, give a summary of the next paper. Uh, and then we're going to go into our discussion um, about it. So, so Abby, over to you. Thanks, Akib. Um, hello, everyone. So just taking you through the summary of the paper titled Complications and Mortality Associated with Electron Fractures in the Elderly, a retrospective cohort comparison from a level one trauma center. Uh, it's great to have uh, Mr. Calling with us as one of the senior, th senior author on the paper. Uh, this was published in Shoulder and Elbow. And uh, the aim of the paper was to define the complications of the surgical treatment of elderly patients with electron fractures. Uh, so in terms of study design, so this was a retrospective review of consecutive electron fractures from a single level one, level one major trauma center, which is Leeds, uh, serving an immediate population of uh, over 750,000 people um, and providing regional care to over 5.4 million patients. Uh, data capture was done between November 2007 and February 2019. Um, clinical codes, uh, patient files and regional death records were um, used to supply the data needed. Um, there were 177 patients uh, over the age of 70 uh, that had been treated for lecanon fractures that were included in this uh, in this review. Uh, the interventions were split into three groups, uh, tension band wire and sutures, uh, first, suture fixation versus open reduction internal fixation, and finally, non-operative. Uh, the treatment decisions were made by senior surgeons, and the decisions to operate uh, was made by the consultant, by consultant surgeons. In terms of the outcomes, the primary outcome was regarding the fixation failure, uh, which included loss of production or metalwork loosening. Um, and then secondly, things that were uh, made a note of were things like wound healing problems, infection, um, uh, return to surgery, as well as radiological healing. In terms of statistics, uh, the expression of continuous variables when they were normally distributed uh, was done by using the means with standard deviations and non-normally distributed and variables uh, were expressed using median values with interquartile ranges. Uh, the comparisons of continuous variables was done via Welsh cheese test and categorical var variables was via chi-squared test. Um, the survival estimation was by the capital nine method and statistical significance was set at P less than 0.05. 
In terms of the results, so starting with demographics, so the mean age of patients was 81.3 years um, with um, high preponderance of female patients, uh, 71.6% uh, being female patients. Um, the duration of follow-up was 19 weeks, with a range between 0 to 345 weeks. Um, 28 patients, uh, so 16% had concomitant injuries, um, of which 14 had a hip fracture. Within the pooled analysis, uh, the fixation failure rate was 14.2%, um, with all uh, um, requiring return to theatre. Um, in terms of the comparison between the treatment methods, there were 82 tension band wires of suture fixations, um, uh, 50 open reduction internal fixations, and 44 patients who underwent a non-operative management. Uh, importantly, um, the mean age of this group was uh, nearly three years higher, 83.8, um, compared to the other groups. In terms of uh, defining the different fracture types, uh, the Mayo electron fracture classification uh, was used, um, and the vast majority of key cases were a 2A, so a displaced simple fracture coordinates classification. Um, so that's 37.5% of the entire volume. Um, open reduction internal fixation was most commonly done for 2B type fractures, so displaced and commutated, as well as those with 3A and B, which are uh, indicative of instability. Um, the tension band wire was most commonly used for a uh, 2A, so displaced simple. And finally, undisplaced fractures were most commonly treated uh, non-operatively. So, um, interesting. Uh, uh, interestingly, they also found that in, within the 2B group, um, nearly 48.3% of the patients uh, underwent tension band wiring, um, which uh, slightly deviated from the sort of the traditional uh, view that uh, uh, commutative fractures should generally have an open reduction internal fixation. Um, in terms of complications, uh, so we know that uh, the, the paper talked about um, operative complications uh, within the tension band and the ORF group. So there was an 18.9% fixation failure, um, so that's 25 patients, all requiring a return to theatre. There, there was no uh, requirement for repeat surgical interventions in the non-operative group. And um, fixation failure itself, most commonly, was metalwork loosening uh, being found in the tension band wire group. In terms of patient survival, uh, the overall survival was 96%. Uh, so pool survival was 96% at 30 days, uh, and this reduced to 84% at one year. Um, as expected, the non-operatively managed patients um, had a significantly worse survival at 62% at one year, um, and survival between the surgical groups, uh, such as tension band and ORF, did not differ. So <clears throat> in terms of the, this, is a this was a large, um, body uh, of work uh, first to talk about causality of com uh, so because it's retrospective um, it couldn't comment on the causality of complications however it's the largest cohort of elderly patients to date um, and the first one to comment uh, on uh, simultaneous injuries as well as survival analysis and uh, the paper, uh, paper does talk about decision making uh, being very important in terms of um, guiding outcome for these patients so in summary this is a retrospective analysis of 177 consecutive electron fractures from a single major trauma center, uh, which revealed high complication rates of 18.9% associated with surgical fixation in elderly patients. Uh, these patients also had a high mortality rate at a year following the injury, and that significant thought should be given to the management options in this cohort um, uh, when deciding uh, strategies. Thank you. Thank you, Abby. Um, that was very comprehensive, lots of figures. <laughs> 
Um, and I, you know, I, I, I quite like this paper myself, um, but what we'll do, we'll go around for general impressions of the paper. Um, Paul, I'm, I'm gonna ask you not to comment yet, and then I'll come to you after we've gone through general impressions to see whether there's anything else that you want to add um, from Abby's description, um, or was, if there was anything surprising um, to you when you were doing the study. Um, so we'll start with Lee. What, what are your general thoughts on the paper? I like it shows uh, the difficulties of treating lacrimal fractures in the elderly. They're not easily treated with all the difficulties of the elderly. I didn't quite realize the mortality associated with uh, uh, lacrimal fractures or this group of patients. Um, so that was something new to me. Hani, what were your thoughts? Um, yeah, again, it addresses a difficult group of patients to treat. I mean, elderly patients have uh, multiple comorbidities. Again, just going by what Paul has just said, I failed to appreciate there was such a high mortality rate uh, following an elbow fracture. But I assume quite a lot of these patients have concomitant injuries, as Abby already mentioned, i.e. hip fractures. And I assume they have other uh, comorbidities, poor mobility, uh, you know, overall poor health which might have also contributed to that high mortality rate. Thank you. Rupin, your thoughts? Yeah, I think it's a great paper because it's a large cohort uh, of patients. Um, uh, and again, you know, in terms of, it helps in terms of decision-making. So, you, I mean, I quite often will treat some of the elderly patients non-optimally and they do, they do okay. You know, they don't do brilliantly, but they do okay. You know, if you have, um, I've had some patients who have, voluntarily for one reason or another wanted to have uh, a fracture electron displaced electron fracture treated non-optimally or because of comorbidities have elected to have that that treated non-optimally and when you see them in clinic they, they do okay I, I feel you know obviously you're not assessing them from a functional point of view for for everyday life right? i think i think um uh, I, th I think they do okay so in from from that point of view it does this paper does highlight the importance of sort of decision making in treating elderly patients because i think Quite often, as orthopedic surgeons, we we're taught, you know, there's a there's a fracture, so we must fix it. And you know, in this particular um, age group, if the mortality rate is so high, then we have to sort of question what we're you know, what we're doing in terms of what's our rationale for fixing these fake fractures. If it's going to help them mobilise from their hip fractures, then yes, I, that might be a good reason for doing it. But we have, you know, I I can think of a handful of cases where people have had concomitant injuries and electrical fracture we've just let them wait there through a zimmer frame um, and and they've done okay as far as i know Danner, what are your thoughts yeah i agree with everyone great paper i think it highlights some really important points concomitant fractures being one of the big ones i think we you know we'll have a lot of these patients with hip fractures and uh electronon fractures and they're elderly and we we fix their hip and you know we end up treating the electronon non-operatively and, and the patients do fine and uh you know the few you do see back in, in the office so i think a uh, really good paper thanks for that and um paul i'm going to come to you now and and i mean the first question really is um is there anything you want to add from from what abby's description was and and if so what and and if not um anything that surprised you when you were going through your data Thanks very much, Abby. It's an excellent summary of the paper. You did, you did it far better than I possibly could do, really. Um, I, I think that the important things I wanted to get across was exactly what everyone else had mentioned, which was about the decision-making with these patients. 
certainly when I was training, then we were taught, as somebody's already described, you've got a fracture, so you probably need to fix it. But particularly with the Olecranon, and particularly with the elderly, um, when I was a junior trainee, I was taught that really fixation is the only way that you'll enable these patients with poor mobility and perhaps proximal muscle loss and therefore difficulty in standing from a seated position. But if you want to be able to push yourselves up for an armchair or anything like that, just to mobilize across the room or go to the kitchen or to the loo, you need that extensor mechanism working. Now, we haven't looked at functional outcomes in this paper, so that's one thing to say. We haven't looked at that, so we can't comment on that. But I think that the notion of treating these conservatively um, is something that's kind of coming into the literature a lot more over the last five to seven years or so. The second thing to say for this is, was the concomitant fractures, actually, that I, I wasn't suspecting there would be as many as there were. There are some slightly odd ones in there, such as a talus fracture, but you know, otherwise it's those common osteoporotic, osteopenic type injuries that we would see. We weren't able, unfortunately, to sub-analyze how those patients with concomitant injuries um, did compared to others, simply because you know, too few of them and their complication rates in comparison. Um, but the, I, I think then the ultimate thing was the, the more, bit mortality of these patients and certainly being slightly higher than I'd anticipated. Uh, and it was only when looking through the data and realizing actually these patients passed away and passed away within a year of their injury. It was quite an important thing to look at and certainly higher than you would expect for somebody who hadn't had this intervention or this injury. Uh, and so it really sort of made us think about our thoughts when you have the patient in front of you in fracture clinic, what should you be doing with this patient? So that's really about individualized care. And I, I wondered, this paper, has that kind of informed and changed your practice or how your institution practices? Um, yes and no. So for instance, I'll sit in our trauma meetings and occasionally they'll flash up an x-ray of somebody who's on a medical ward. Um, our, our trust is split over a couple of sites and the medical wards tend to be on the other side. Uh, and, you know, an elderly patient with dementia who's been treated for respiratory illness or even COVID, uh, and my colleagues are getting them to be transferred over for fixation the following day, whereas I, based on this study plus all others, will perhaps have a, a more conservative approach is important. But nevertheless, I think that you do have to sometimes see the whites of a patient's eyes to understand what they're like, what their outcomes, uh, what outcomes they would aim for, and what we think we would be able to achieve with them. I think somebody else earlier mentioned, you know, eyeballing the x-ray and just looking yourself for signs of osteopenia, or osteoporosis, type of fracture, really important in determining how you're going to treat these sorts of injuries. So I think it's changed my practice. Uh, you know, I've been somebody who's thought about these a lot more than perhaps previously. Um, and maybe it's filtering to my colleagues, we'll have to see. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, so let's open it up to the rest of the panel now. Uh, so any any thoughts about um, uh, this paper and whether it has changed your practice or whether it's food for thought? Um, Lee, what are your thoughts? Um, I would say it's changed my practice. Uh, I like that comment Paul made about seeing the whites of the person's eyes. If you, I'm very seldom read numbers. I'm not very good with maths, but I look at figure three. And if you have a look at figure three, you can't see it, obviously, because we're just talking here. But figure three is looking at mortality, uh, survivorship. And you'll see that there's two graphs here. 
It's one of those that are non-operative and one of those that are operative, whether it's tension band wiring or sutures. And here in this group of patients, there's two groups, there's apples and oranges here. And I think what we need somewhere in orthopedics for the elderly is a frailty index. You asked me earlier, sir, is there a difference in age between 41 and 53? I'm going to say no, because I'm 51, okay? But is there really an age difference between 80 and 84? Probably. And so be careful using this study and using the Duckworth study, the randomized controlled trial of uh, non-operative treatment in the elderly, of then generating a uh, fracture clinic scenario where anyone over the age of 75 gets treated non-operatively. Um, you know, just be careful. Don't let your pendulum swing too hard to non-operative because those that were treated operatively in this study did actually very well. I don't like the wording in the paper where they talk about loss of fixation. Yes, there was metalwork mischief, but in fact, in the operative group, only one of them lost reduction. Those that were treated non-optively, all of them lost reduction because, in fact, none of them had a reduction. That's quite an interesting point. Um, Hani and, and Rupin, let's go to Hani first. What are your thoughts? Um, I must admit, uh, considering I'm not a shoulder and elbow uh, surgeon, I tend to get an opinion from my upper limb colleagues before making a decision on these you know, uh, elderly patients who came in under my care with you know, multiple comorbidities. But from the ones that have come in under my care, I must admit, I've probably treated nine out of 10 non-operatively. But again, that wasn't a single decision. That's a decision, you know, joined with either one or two other upper limb or shoulder and elbow surgeons within the unit. And, and Rupin, you, earlier you were saying, you know, that often these patients do they, they can do well if, if they're treated non-operatively. And those are the frail ones that you've seen the whites of the eyes, I'm sure. Um, so I, I guess the real question then, is this really like a scenario where you you look at the patient and you kind of, based on your experience, you say this person's going to do well or this person is is not going to do well. Um, is, is there is there any more science into deciding, you know, uh, who, who will be okay with, with a fixation and who won't? Is this where we need a frailty index, as Lee says? I'm, I'm not sure. Um, you know, Rupin, what are your thoughts? I think I'll just echo what everyone else has said. I think it's about seeing the voice of the patient and understanding what their functional demands are. Uh, you know, you have an 80-year-old and you have an 80-year-old. You know, you have an 80-year-old patient who could be very fit and well and very active. So I think you'd do them disservice by not fixing the electron they could have an 80 year old who is a nursing home patient who's been hoisted uh, completely bedbound and they've sustained an electron fracture as part of other concomitant injuries and those could easily be treated non-operatively so i think it's about understanding the patient and understanding what their particular needs are i think what this paper reinforces is it's you know that the complication rates can be high if if you cho- choose the wrong patient um, and not all electron fractures do need to be fixed but I, know, I think that my practice hasn't changed in that. I don't, you know, I don't have an age cutoff beyond which I will not operate in an electron fracture. I, th- I think the vast majority do get an operation, but there is definitely a room for non-operative treatment in a certain cohort of patients. Thank you. Kartik, you had a question. Sorry, Paul, you're unmuted. You can finish up the point and then we'll go over to Kartik. No, sorry, sorry, Aki, uh, and sorry, Carter. I was just going to make a really quick point, actually. It's interesting when looking at the few studies that there are on um, electron fractures in the elderly, 
what is classified as being elderly. So we chose 70 and we go through the reasons behind that in our discussion. There are the paper that Lee mentioned earlier about Duckworth's RCT uh, was over the age of 75. There are some that classify 80, most are 70. Uh, and I think that's the point that you can't use age as specific cutoff. Um, you're using the patients in front of you with comorbidities, mobility issues, everything else going on plus that fracture um, uh, uh, to make your decision. I don't think that you can just go off that, that number alone. Thank you. That's a really good point. Um, Kartik. I really enjoyed this paper. I think a lot of it, the, my feeling from it is not about the, the numbers, as uh, Lee and uh, Rupin and Paul have said. The groups are so different, but on paper they might seem quite similar. So you know, the, the the people who didn't get surgery were just you know eighty three years old compared to the ones that got surgery that were eighty. So clearly, age is not really a useful metric. But what the paper suggested to me is that you know, this was a big cohort of patients uh, performed by dozens of surgeons probably, but the surgeons seemed to be getting it right, and 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 that. Um, that Kaplan-Meier chart that uh, Lee mentioned, where there's real divergence of patient survivorship based on what group they they uh, they were in, showed that the surgeons were able to actually make that judgment call. And clearly, it's something that comes with experience and and, and thinking thinking of the patient as a whole. Now, Paul earlier on was asked about how this may have changed changed practice, and I wanted to ask one small thing that was slightly in the weeds was about the management of, of, of Mayo two Bs in these patients. The Mayo 2B, of course, is the, is the, is the stable but um, comminuted uh, electron fracture. And, and, and for whatever reason, there were almost half of these had tension band wire constructs, where typically means a trainee uh, taught that those would typically get plates. So even though in these patients who are low demand, uh, Paul, do you think that we should really stick to separating out two A's as more suitable for plate or wire, as per the first paper? and two Bs really are for the plates uh, alone. Thank you. Um, it's a really good uh, question, Kartik. And uh, when I'm looking at a fracture, that's one of the things, if I was going to fix this, how would I fix it? And what's the best method? Um, and again, I think there are two Bs and then there are two Bs, the same as we've just said, there's an eight-year-old and there's an eight-year-old. Um, our classification, if it was commutated in any sort of way, um, we would have classified it as that. And I was also very surprised to find that almost 50% of our patients who had two Bs underwent a tension band wire. And that's something that then I take to our sort of audit meeting and, and suggest to the rest of the uh, uh, my colleagues that we perhaps need to think about this in more detail. That makes me worry. Uh, and the reason being that really that tension band construct theoretically um, shouldn't be working in those circumstances. However, there are certain considerations of where that communication is, where your wire is going to be placed, and also where the fracture is in relationship to the center of rotation of the electron, thereby where your fixation compression or certainly hold will be across any of these types of fractures. And so there will be some of those two Bs where a tension band wire you can do. And I think as the term somebody used earlier, you can get away with it because the, in the elbows, sometimes you can do. Uh, and so it might just be that sort of thing. I, I, I think basically, you know, to, to kind of summarize Kartik, the exam answer is, 
in a comminuted fracture, plating is the preferred choice. In a simple fracture, the tension bound wiring is a preferred choice. But there are so many bits in between. Um, and, you know, without going through all of our uh, 2Bs to tell you exactly how comminuted things are, it's quite difficult to say that. But that was something that really stood out for me as being a, a sort of issue with our choice. You very nicely complimented it on, on our selection for operative versus non-operative, but I wonder whether we can improve our selection for operative treatments. Thanks, Paul. Um, and, and, and one other follow-up question. I think it was Lee or, or Rupin that mentioned about clinical frailty and we're encouraged now to do um, that form of scoring uh, as routine for hip fractures, for the not hip fracture and, and, and so on. How would anyone on stage, or, or Paul maybe first, propose to help someone who hasn't seen so many or maybe when there's no upper limb surgeon to talk to, like Hani said immediately, how do we object objectively work out who are those patients is, is it worth doing or is it just again you have to see them you have to look in the patient's eyes and you have to let the expert make the call for me personally i don't think it necessarily has to be a, an expert because we make these decisions about patients not just for electronal fractures but all sorts of fractures i do think seeing them is important because then you are judging people just by the number on the front of their notes really their age and so I think it comes along with, you know, is this a candidate that actually would survive an operation? Are they suitable for it? Their comorbidities dictate that actually an operation is going to be very, very risky. And then you're weighing up the risk of doing an operation versus the risk of not doing an operation. How will that affect their upper limb? And so I don't necessarily think you need that. The second thought is, you know, an electron fracture isn't a fracture that needs immediate operation unless it's an open fracture or you know any of the usual things that you're all aware of so as a result you know if you want to weekend you're alone and you don't have an upper limb surgeon around these can be these can wait and discuss if you need to you know it's not something that you necessarily need to rush into at three o'clock in the morning generally so you know there's, there's certainly people you can go to but it's the same discussion and same thought processes you'd have about anybody who came in with that I think the only caveat to that that I might just add is that because we are aware that some patients do quite well or reasonably well without an operation, that perhaps comes into your decision making where you're weighing up, is this a good suitable candidate for an operation full stop versus non-operative? And if they don't have the operation, what's the effect on them? Actually, they may have a reasonable level of function. So that might sway the scales slightly when you're thinking about them. That's a, that's a really excellent um, summary, Paul. Abby? Uh, yeah, I just had a question um, uh, for Mr. Cowling. Um, in terms of, obviously, this is an excellent paper that sort of um, reinforces a narrative review with, you know, retrospective data that allows you to do some things which haven't been done in the past, uh, namely present a, a large cohort of uh, elderly patients and undertake things like survival analysis. On the back of that, do you think that these fractures um, in the elderly should inst automatically instigate sort of a bone health pathway similar to the ones that we do for our neck of femur patients, for example? Um, so it's a good question, Abby, but we, we tried in the sort of discussion to compare the survivorship to, for example, the neck of femur 
and, and you know, a neck of femur far outstrips um, outstrips an olecranon fracture for survivorship at uh, 30 days as well as up to th- um, three months and up to a year. And the other thing is, uh, you know, there are other osteoporotic fractures or other fractures that people get. So, you know, we wanted to look at this because the we, we were noticing that there were a cohort of people with electron fractures who weren't attending follow-up basically because they died, you know, and it was as simple as that. And it's, and it's this sort of thing. I, I don't think that it needs to instigate anything further. They will get their bone protection, or certainly in Leeds, I have to say, they would get a bone protection look at. But I don't think necessarily it's uh, something that would have the whole pathway that a neck of femur um, uh, type of injury has. Does it warrant it from this? Yes, there is a higher than I anticipated um, uh, death rate, for want of a better word. Um, up to a year but I don't know you know the, the discussion we made about it was this is a sign of frailty I think that's the point where it could be a fracture of frailty um, just as a number of others could so something again to bear in mind um, whether or not it has enough power to flag that up I don't know really that comes from sort of epidemiological studies more than perhaps ours is able to run into Thank you so much. Um, I'm going to uh, just uh, refresh the room and just uh, bring us up to date. We've been going for about 75 minutes now uh, in this room, which um, is uh, which has been great. We've, we've covered quite a lot of ground. We've covered two papers. We've spoken a lot about olecranon fractures in terms of a comparison of uh, fixation methods, in terms of the patients that you decide to operate on and those that you decide not to, um, and how that may be sometimes a bit more of a complex decision than simply looking at an x-ray. Um, we've discussed in detail uh, the mortality and the concomitant injuries that one may find with an olecranon fracture and the thought process that goes behind that. So we've covered quite a lot of ground in the last 75 minutes. Um, I'm going to just invite the audience to see if there's anyone who wants to raise their hand to ask any questions whilst we still have the speakers up here. Uh, I am conscious that it is Mother's Day in the UK um, and that I've kept everyone from their mothers for the last 75 minutes. Um, so we're not going to keep anyone longer than we need to. Um, so if you do have any questions for, for the guys up on stage, uh, now's your chance to raise your hand. Um, and we'll look to close this room maybe in the, la- in the next five to ten minutes. Um, I do have a question whilst we wait and see if anyone does want to raise their hand, uh, which is open to the upper limb surgeons in the room. Um, with the Mayo 3 fracture, so these are fractures for the audience where you have a um, displaced comminuted olecranon fracture with instability. Um, what what is your approach? How do you fix these? And you know, do you use plates? And how do you do you fix? How do you fix the instability? How do you reconstruct the ligaments? What do you do? Um, should we start with Lee? So you're now coming into the world of complex instability and the proximal ulnar fracture dislocations. And within that, there's two groups. You've got the transolecranon fracture dislocations, which is classically the one we talk about, and then the Montegibarians, and there's a little bit of an overlap with the two. I think we'll just stick to the transolecranon fracture dislocation. So the 3A, where you get forearm instability, that's where your radius and your ulna normally migrate proximally. And there, it's really just about making everything anatomic and not being scared to go down the side of the ulna and the lecranon, elevating FCU and ECU to get to the pieces that you need to see. And be prepared not to just use a dorsal plate or not just to certainly not use tension bone wiring in that loop because they need more stability. But don't be scared to augment your fixation with a mini plate along the side or you know, a hand plate. And 
those pieces that are breaking off on the side, the supinator crest or the uh, sublime tubercle, need to be put back anatomically. And so there, I think it really is about not being scared. Because normally when we fix an electron on, you just fix the dorsal surface. That's all you look at, really. Um, but don't be scared to go down the sides of the ulna for those ones and fix them for the trans-electron fracture desiccation. And tegevariance is a whole talk in its own, so. So, so if we stick with those trans-electron fractures, do you, do you routinely um, dissect out the ulnar nerve when you're doing that? Um, I, I, I dissect out the ulnar nerve when I need to. Um, so no, not always. Sometimes if I'm staying far away from it because I know where it is, um, I'll keep away from it. And so no, I don't always go looking for trouble. I prefer not to look for trouble, so I'll keep away from it. If I was going around the medial side and elevating FCU off the side of the honor, I'd probably de-roof it, so I'd have a look at it under uh, Osborne's fascia, um, but I wouldn't transpose it and I wouldn't mess with it too much. But most times, if you stay subcutaneous on the bone and slide down the sides of the bone, you don't have to go find the honor nerve. Thanks. And, and Rupin, what, what are your thoughts? I don't know. I'd echo that because I've learned everything from Lee. <laughs> um, yeah, I think the take-home message is tension band is definitely a no-no for transelectron fracture dislocation, so you, you, know, you must use a plate there. Uh, and I think the idea of dual plating, uh, like Lee mentioned, the, the either the hand plates or specific electron on uh, dual plates is probably a good idea in those cases where you do have comminution either on the lateral or medial columns. Thanks. And Paul, any thoughts? I've not got a lot more to add um, from what Lee said. Again, I, I learned most of how I fix these um, from Lee himself. It's interesting because some of the plates um, that we have on our kit, such as the Alps plates, have these sort of small fins, and it's just a single drill hole that you can use jutting out immediately and laterally. I actually find they're almost in totally the wrong position to try and capture exactly what Lee said. So if you're going up the lateral side and you're wanting to get to the um, tubercle, I just don't think that it's it's there. And so you need something separate. Um, and so just using something extra, equally using a lag screw if there's a large chunk going transversely across the electronaut um, can be useful in these. But, um, you know, don't be afraid to get a CT scan to look at these in more detail of where the bits come from. Um, but in general, when you open it up and you fix the jigsaw puzzle together, that's when you know where you're going to need to put plates or extra bits of screws. Thank you. Um, Kartik, you had one last question, I think, for a quick fire for the uh, upper limb surgeons, and then and then we may uh, draw the room to a close. Yeah, quick fire for Lee, Paul, and Rupert, if you don't mind. The soft trials recruiting in the UK, there's the simple electron fractures comparing tension bound wires to suture fixation. Good idea, bad idea. Thanks. I think it's a good idea. I'm not recruiting because I don't have equipoise. I still believe that tension band wiring in my hands works well. Um, I may be mis misguided. I think it's a good idea. It's time. Um, but uh, um, I'm a little bit too much of a late doctor. And so I'll be reading it. I, I love it when these people write this stuff. I, I love reading about elbows. So yes, good idea. I'm not recruiting person. Paul? Um, I, I think for the point that Lee's just said, the timing, um, you know, it, it is the reason why this is a good study to have. More and more people are doing suture 
repair. We don't have the results for it. So we've got small series of data and that's why we need this study to take place. And Ruben. Yeah, I, I think it's a great idea. Um, to be honest, I do do suture fixation, but I tend to supplement that with a plate now. So it might, might sound a bit bizarre, but I've just not been brave enough to leave it just with a suture fixation. And it's probably because I, I don't have the results to back that up. Um, so, you know, going back to your earlier point of the uh, type 2B fractures, I quite often will use that Wrightington uh, Adam Watts technique of uh, fixing the fracture. So you, what you then tend to have is the fractures sort of fixed with the suture fixation. And then I tend to uh, do deal plating on top of the sutures, which sounds a bit bizarre, but the suture fixation has just literally given me my initial reduction and then I'm supplementing it with two um, plates. But it'd be good to, uh, good to know what the results are of suture fixations alone. The only one I have done was, was a, uh, funnily enough, in, in a elderly patient that was fixed with a tension band and the tension band failed. So I took the wires out and I just supplemented it with a um, sort of Adam Watts technique for suture fixation and, and the patient did okay. But that was, is a very anecdotal one case. Uh, and in that particular case, you know, the patient um, didn't really want any further mental work, but we had to go in there to take the mental work out because it was backing out and threatening the skin. So it'd be good to know the results of uh, suture fixation uh, in the future to see how well they fare up compared with conventional methods of fixing electronal fractures. Okay, fantastic. Uh, Paul, go ahead. If I could just, I just want to get on just, I keep on that point. It's a really good point, actually, um, because there are a number of papers, ours included, talking about um, mischief with metalwork, particularly in the elderly. I think it's driven people to use suture fixation in the elderly a lot more, um, more so than actually in younger adults, um, mainly because you don't want to return to surgery perhaps as frequently to remove metal work if they're elderly because of their comorbidities, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, and so it's almost become an operation to do in the elderly. And that's why I think this important um, uh, study to do, because this is a whole different cohort, as hopefully our paper has shown, you know, that there are a whole different variability amongst that cohort. And if we're saying, well, actually, in the elderly, I do this because they have metal work problems, uh, you know, I have slight issue with that um, and, and because we haven't really proven what that reason is, what, you know, why that is and whether suture fixation will be any different. So people's thoughts that this is just for the elderly suture fixation, I'm not so sure. And this study will help us to know that. Brilliant. Um, on that note, I'm going to uh, draw the room to a close. So before we go, I want to thank everybody for being involved. Um, we've been going for 85 minutes, so it's been a very robust discussion. We've covered a lot of ground. We've covered both papers and we've spoken about um, management options and thoughts when it comes to uh, olecranon fractures and injuries around the elbow um, in different patient demographics as well. So um, thank you so much, uh, Lee, Paul, Hani, Rupin, um, and uh, thank you to um, Kartik, Abhinav, and uh, Danur as well uh, for making it. And thank you to everyone in the audience. So just to remind you, we're the Bone Club. We're new. Um, Clubhouse is relatively new as well. We've been recording this um, for everyone who isn't on the platform yet and for anyone who has an Android. Um, so this, rec this podcast recording will be up on our website um, fairly soon uh, so that other people can benefit from the thoughts that we shared today. Um, please do follow The Bone Club uh, and everyone up on screen if you want to have a better uh, Clubhouse experience and be drawn into rooms which are themed around the sort of things that we discuss. 
Um, this is a weekly occurrence. Next week on uh, Sunday, we'll be doing pediatric um, uh, themed journal club. And um, we've got Pranay Budev, uh, who will be um, moderating uh, and organizing that. And I think we have got quite a few um, prominent pediatric surgeons who will be coming along to that. So please look out for that. And um, to remind you as well, we have our weekly fellowship room, uh, which occurs on Thursdays, uh, which uh, will be running again this week. So please do invite um, your friends onto the platform, invite them to join the Bone Club, um, get them uh, to uh, you know follow us and to bring people along. Um, as the community grows, hopefully we'll have more panelists on, we'll have a more global outlook as well with um, surgeons around the world uh, joining us and giving us their opinions. So uh, on that note, a uh, bit more Stevie Wonder for everyone and have a good evening and have a good Mother's Day to everyone in the UK.